0: Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to tour al-Mansur's domain and witness his armies in action. There will be plenty of jumping around as we cover the considerable expanse of the Caliphate, and after stops in India, the Byzantine Empire, and Africa, we'll focus on the unlikeliest of second chances when we get to Andalusia. All this in episode 46 – shifting east Unlike our last couple of episodes on al-Mansur, I aim for today to be less thematically focused and more of a romp through some of the many, many wars which took place during the Caliph's long reign. One reason for this is that our sources have less to say about these events, but another is that I feel like we could use a break from our deep dives into pivotal themes like the East and the intra Hashemite struggle to survey the scene more generally. While the wide headline for our narrative today is war, we'll find plenty of amusing tales as we go along, ones which shed some light on what the Ummah's conflicts were like and how its challenges differed from region to region. Before we go abroad to meet foreign adversaries, we'll begin internally with some of the dissent that is sporadically attributed to the khawarij. Who else? The label has become tautological at this point, as it no longer has any ideological meaning behind it. Any group of Muslims who refused to pledge to the Caliph were considered to have seceded from the Ummah, making them Karajites. It is therefore not surprising that these were usually folks far removed from the centers of official authority, typically on the fringes of the Caliphate. khorasan Jazira or northern Mesopotamia, the edges of the Arabian Peninsula and the African Desert were all Karajite hotspots but these only posed a material threat to authority when they tried to challenge the caliph somewhere that mattered. One of the commanders the caliph used to great effect against Karajite flare-ups was Ma'an ibn Zaid al-Shaybani. But to truly appreciate Ma'an's story, we need to go back to before Abbasid times, when he was a tribal leader loyal to the Umayyads. He had commanded his tribe at the battle for Kufa, fighting for Marwan's governor of Iraq, Omar ibn Hubayra. Some accounts take this further and say that it was Man who had killed Qahtaba, the general leading the Dawa's forces, but that is far-fetched and unsupported, though it does help us remember where Man stood at the time. In any case, the Abbasids won that fight despite Qahtaba's death, and Umar's armies, including Ma'an, withdrew and fortified in the canton city of Wasit. Now you may remember that these men were besieged for a year before a negotiated settlement was reached, after which Omar and all his leaders were betrayed and killed. Here we find two diverting stories about how Man survived what should have been his end. The first says that he was the man sent to submit to al Safah on behalf of Omar and his army, so he was spared this mass execution only on account of being absent, and that when he heard what had happened he quickly went into hiding, lest his luck run out. The other account is less straightforward. It says that he quietly tried escaping from Wasit, but was held up at sword point by a slave who had recognized him. Ma'an threw the guy a bejeweled necklace worth several times his bounty, and to this his captor said he would let Ma'an go if he answered his questions truthfully. He asked Ma'an why he was known for his generosity, and Ma'an replied that it was because he had given so much of his wealth in service of others. Asked if he had given away half of it, Ma'an said no. Then a third perhaps? No again. A quarter? No. A fifth? No. Maen finally nodded when the man guessed a tenth, after which he threw the necklace back, telling Maen he was leaving him with both his life and his riches, so that he would forever remember that a lowly slave was more generous than he. Maen protested at the shame of being shown such generosity, and he beseeched the man to take the bejeweled necklace. But the slave insisted accusing Ma'an of trying to rob him of his rightful place as the most generous man in the Ummah. Generosity is an important virtue to the Arabs, probably due to the inhospitality of the desert, and so it's not uncommon to find it lionized in their poetry and oral accounts. Ma'an especially is the subject of many such stories peppered throughout his illustrious career. But anyway, Ma'an survived the siege as a wanted man. This was the case for the next few years, and he returned to his tribe and took charge as they led a nomadic life west of Iraq. A few years later, in 757, the Rawandiyah arrived at the caliph's doorstep, and all of a sudden Ma'an burst back onto the scene. So in our episode on the East, I made the Rawandiyah movement seem like a small, benign affair that was put down with relative ease. While I got the size right, Many narrations insist that it was a far more serious threat to the Caliph than I had let on, and that without Ma'an's aid that day, Al-Mansur could have perished at the hands of the throng. These accounts may be on to something, as the Caliph was extremely grateful to Ma'an. He pardoned him for having supported the Umayyads, rewarded him greatly, and a couple years later in 759, appointed him as governor of Yemen following a Karajite uprising in the province. We don't have many details about the Karajites in Yemen. Apparently, they had managed to expel al Mansur's last governor after defeating his forces in a surprise assault, but nothing about their goals or beef with the Caliphate in our sources. Over nine years, Man dealt with them brutally and effectively, successfully re establishing Abbasid control of the area. There were other Karajite rebellions nearby, like one in Oman, which the Caliph put Khazim ibn Khuzayma in charge of but I only mention it so that I can issue my second correction of the day. I had previously said that Khazim will be with us for quite a while, but sadly I misspoke, having mistaken his son's name for his own down the line. Khazim may have died shortly following his victorious war against Usteth Sis, though his son, Khuzayma ibn Khazim, will carry on his father's legacy as a commander in the Ummah's armies. When Karajites rose up near modern-day Afghanistan in 768, al-Mansur summoned Main back to Iraq. The caliph asked the old commander if he felt he still had a few good years left, and after receiving an enthusiastic response, he put him in charge of Sajistan. Here too, Ma'an destroyed the Karajites, though we don't really have much on that conflict either. They were so hopelessly defeated on the battlefield that the Karajites resorted to underhanded tactics. Under the guise of laborers, assassins made their way into a house man was building in Bust, modern-day Lashkargah. After working there for a few days to allay suspicions, they slayed the generous governor in his nightclothes. When his nephew found out the next day, he led a large-scale massacre of all the Karajites he could get his hands on, then marched the army back to Iraq, inflicting the same ugly fate on any others who crossed his path. Enough about the Caliph's internal enemies. Let's begin the foreign affairs portion of today's episode. We'll start with the province of Sindh, which we have a little more to say about for a change, especially if you count this next bit, which is technically not a correction, but a supplement. A couple episodes ago, I said that the Caliph punished some tribally motivated violence in the province, but I have to admit that I just picked a narration after growing frustrated with how incoherent the other ones I came across were. Let me walk you through what we find in our sources. The first Abbasid governor of Sindh was this OG supporter of the Da'wah named Musa, who'd suffered terrible torture at the hands of the previous caliphate. He defeated some Qahtani remnants who had been loyal to the Umayyad governor preceding him, but generally he just basked in the success of the revolution he had helped bring about. At some point, Musa left his son in charge and went back west, probably on a pilgrimage originally. He passed by the caliph's court, was showered with riches, and to top it off Al-Mansur then asked him to go govern Egypt. This was super confusing to me since he was already the governor of Sindh, but now I see it as another reminder of how little regard the distant province was given within the caliphate. A couple years into his new gig as governor of Egypt, Musa passed away, and that was when the police chief of Sindh sensed an opportunity for advancement. He wrote the caliph some threatening poetry and purposely neglected to sign his name so that al-Mansur would think it came from the acting governor, Musa's son Ayyina. That not only threw me in for a loop, but it also worked on al-Mansur, who appointed Omar ibn Hafs al-Muhallabi as the new governor and sent him to send with a large army to seize the province from Ayyina. At least, that's what some accounts say. Others are convinced that Ayyina had tried to break away from the caliphate, and others still make him out to be a partisan in the tribal feud, which hopefully explains my confusion earlier. Whatever the case may be, Omar defeated Ayyina and took the capital of Al-Mansura, which, I promise you, was not named for the caliph. The Arabs had founded the city on the eastern shore of the Indus River back in Umayyad times. After stabilizing the situation and building some defenses, Omar was recalled for other assignments and replaced with a governor named Hisham. Evidently, Hisham had ambitious plans because he immediately set about preparing for an invasion of nearby lands. His first army went east into India, where it quickly met with victory and earned great riches. Then he decided to personally lead his armies upriver to Multan, the largest nearby city out of Arab control. After a fierce battle against its lord and defenders, his forces emerged triumphant. He pillaged the city and sent the wealth downriver to his treasuries in Mansura. Not content with all the booty he had taken thus far, he went on one final campaign, this time west to Kandahar. Here too he won some riches after sacking its temples and were told he destroyed a Buddha and built a mosque. When he was finished, he took all the wealth he had captured and showed up in Iraq with more treasure than anyone had ever seen coming from the east. Hisham was honored by the Caliph, but it did not last long as he caught a disease and died within weeks of his arrival at Al-Mansur's court. His replacement proved to be a far more peaceable governor, and we don't hear much about the province for a while. Before we move on from the east of the Caliphate, I just want to add that I looked into it as promised, and it seems there really was an invasion of Taylam during Al-Mansur's reign. Taylam was the small independent statelet close to Tabaristan, along the southern coast of the Caspian Sea. It probably took place shortly after the fall of Tabaristan around 760, but the Arabs don't seem to have encountered much resistance nor found much booty because we don't hear about either. The only evidence we have for this campaign is reports of mobilization. Anyway, it's not important I just felt obliged to mention it. Now that we are done with the east, let's move on to the north, where two of the caliphate's opponents had kind of teamed up against it. The Byzantines had recouped much of their vitality on the battlefield during the stable reigns of their last couple of emperors. After Leo III, who had ruled from 715 back in the days of Suleyman, came Constantine V, who had taken power towards the end of Hisham's reign in 741. After withering his own short-lived coup attempt, he took good advantage of the chaos of the Third Fitna by recapturing Cyprus and the city of Mar'ash close to Syria. This went on into the beginning of the Abbasid dynasty, and the Byzantines continued to confidently press the attack against the Arabs. They took a couple more sites on the frontier notably the important cities of Malatia and modern-day Erzurum. Al-Mansur did retake Malatia in 755, and he rebuilt its fortifications to be stronger than ever, possibly trying to mark it as a hard border against the Byzantine Empire. Although we still hear of annual summer raids against the Byzantines in the early Abbasid era, the tempo of that conflict had clearly shifted since Hisham's time. Back then, The Byzantines were always on the defensive, and their victories were ones in which they inflicted some pain on their invaders, usually from behind thick walls. The third fitna had sapped the Ummah's defenses and allowed the Byzantines to emerge as a threat once again. With the new Abbasid Caliphate based further east in Iraq, the province of Syria, while still important, lost its paramount status within the Caliphate, giving the Byzantines even more room to breathe a transformation we'll see play out over the rest of this podcast. But a caliph like al-Mansur wasn't going to ignore any threats to his realm, and in his first few years in charge, he retook Cyprus and some of the land lost in the chaos of the previous decade. The first sizable attack against the caliphate from its north came not from the Byzantines but the Khazars across the Caucasus. In 762, a host of them suddenly attacked near Armenia, taking its governor by surprise. When his northern armies failed, Al-Mansur sent 20,000 more men as reinforcements, but they too proved no match for the Khazars, who continued to pillage the region for another two years, encouraging similar misbehavior from the local Armenians. Another 20,000 had to be sent to quell those movements, though not until the Khazars had retreated back north. Al-Mansur used their absence to build three new fort towns on the mountainous passes between their domains. His losses had taken their toll, though, and he had to order the release of 7,000 prisoners to help construct and man these new fortifications. The reason I said the Ummah's northern foes had been united is not because of anything I found in our sources, who seem to regard the Khazar's sudden appearance and departure the same way they would a swarm of locusts just another inexplicable destructive force of nature. But while looking for a better explanation, I discovered that Constantine's wife was the daughter of the Khazar chief, a strong indication of some bridge-building between the two powers. While she had passed away more than a decade before the Khazar invasion, I think there's more to it, especially since her son, Leo the Khazar, had already been confirmed as, and indeed will become, the next Byzantine emperor. Al-Mansur's new fortifications did make the Khazars less of a threat, but the Byzantines continued to harass the Caliphate's borders for a while longer. Arab campaigns were typically led and attended by the Ummah's MVPs, and to hear our sources tell it, the warring itself was more triumphal preening than dangerous fighting. The narrations and poetry we find in our sources almost make it seem like a social event, so much so that we're told the caliph's aunts attended the raids one summer in fulfillment of a vow they had taken. In 757, the two sides exchanged war captives, probably a first between the two powers, and they agreed to a short-lived truce. After some back-and-forth fighting for another decade, the Byzantines agreed to pay the caliphate tribute for peace in 772, probably so that they could focus on threats coming to them from the Balkans. Alright, that's two down, two to go. Next stop, Africa. Following the loss of Qayrawan shortly after the Great Berber Revolt, the center of Arab power had reverted all the way east to Egypt. The first protagonist on this leg of our tour will be Muhammad ibn al ashath al khuzai whom we will call ibn al ashath for short, but I'll have to lead his introduction with my second corrective supplement of the day. Ibn al-Ash'ath was the commander Al-Mansur had sent to deal with Ibn Marrar, the guy who had defeated the rebel Sunpath, then felt out with the caliph over his failure to deliver Abu Muslim's treasure. I said the treasure had already been transferred to Tabaristan, and so I couldn't explain why Ibn Marrar was in trouble. Well, these narrations on Ibn al-Ash'ath say otherwise. They report that Ibn Marrar had kept the treasure and was ready to fight the caliphate's armies for it. Ibn al-Ash'ath defeated him once in Rai, then again closer to Isfahan after Ibn Marrar used his wealth to hire local mercenaries. Ibn Marrar escaped to Azerbaijan after his second defeat, where some accounts claim he used his riches to shield himself for a whopping six years before going broke. Ultimately, everyone agrees that the locals killed him and sent his head to Al-Mansur. But anyway, back to Ibn al-Ash'ath. In 759, Al-Mansur made him governor of Egypt, an arrangement which only lasted a little over a year. It seems that Ibn al-Ash'at's revenues from the province were disappointing, and he was replaced by a treasurer which the caliph had sent him. We should not judge Ibn al-Ash'at harshly for this. The post of governor of Egypt was the one which changed hands the most during Al-Mansur's administration. Anyway, he wasn't exiled or anything. The caliph just decided Ibn al-Ash'ath was better suited to commanding armies than collecting taxes. So, the caliph gave him an army 40,000 strong, along with orders to retake Africa. Ibn al-Ash'ath did not pussyfoot around his new assignment. He took his men and went straight for the leader of the local Karajite outfit, which had taken control of the entire Libyan coast. He was fortunate enough to catch this rebel when he only had twelve thousand of his men around to protect him, and the battle, somewhere between Sirte and Tawirgah, was quite one-sided in the Caliphate's favor. Since the bulk of the Karajite forces had been absent, it wasn't too long before another Karajite leader emerged with sixteen thousand more. Having effectively halved the forces they could marshal against him, Ibn al-Ash'ath faced little trouble putting these down as well. While neither of the two Karajite leaders was of great consequence, this particular branch of Karajite ideology, a kind of militant Ibadi Islam, will maintain a durable appeal in the region. It will prove so popular that it will go on to enable the emergence of an Ibadi tribal coalition in the deserts of Algeria and Libya before too long. Since these rebels are all referred to as Karajites in our sources, as opposed to Berbers, we can safely assume that they exhibited a kind of ideological consistency. A couple years later, Ibn al-Ash'ath became the first Abbasid commander to enter Qayrawan after retaking it from the Karajites in 762. This was a huge victory for the Ummah. The city had served as the capital of Umayyad Africa, or modern-day Tunis. He spent the next two years reinforcing it, building a pair of walls the outer one of which was ten arms thick. After making the city as impregnable as possible, Ibn al ashath once again went on the offensive, this time heading straight for the Karajite capital of Tripoli. He defeated his opponents once again, and proceeded to cleanse the city of all Karajite elements, which I'm pretty sure just means a massacre. After this, we hear of more victories, not west into Morocco, but south into the Sahara and east into Sudan. Ibn al-Ash'at's luck was about to run out, however, though it was his own men who took him down. One of them led a coup against him, and since his armies were entirely comprised of Arabs, it split into a coalition-like pattern resembling the tribal feud. Ibn al ashath defeated the renegades, but in doing so he spilt so much Adnani blood that he became too divisive a figure for an army to unite behind, and there was no resisting the next coup that erupted against him. Ibn al-Ash'ath returned to Iraq, where the caliph honored and rewarded him for his service. He died a few years later, in 767, of some disease while en route to attack the Byzantines alongside the caliph's son, al-Mahdi. But let's return to Africa. The caliph picked a lieutenant of Ibn al-Ash'at's as the next governor and commander of the province, a man named Aghleb bin Salim al-Tamimi. Aghlab only ruled a couple years before facing a similar rebellion against his own authority, and he probably died trying to defeat the rebel army that had seized Qayrawan. In 768, the caliph had to send a large army under the command of Umar ibn Hafs al-Muhallabi, the same guy we met in Sindh earlier, to re-establish control of the region. Omar did an admirable job for a while, retaking Qayrawan and marching as far west as Morocco while establishing some defensible positions along the way. He only survived for three years, though. In 771, Karajites surrounded Kairawan and after the capital began to run out of provisions, Omar died trying to lift the siege. To avenge his loss, the caliph sent another Muhallabite named Yazid with a massive army of 60,000 to teach the Karagites a lesson once and for all. Yazid managed several convincing victories against their forces and went on to govern the province for many years. A couple notes on Africa before we proceed to our final segment. It is clear just how hard-fought the battle for control over North Africa was, far beyond any other part of the caliphate. There was strong resistance from the local population who were confident in their ability to resist the Arabs, having already succeeded at turning them away once before. Their unity went beyond the ethnic and seems to have owed a lot to the Ibadi creed originally brought by Karajite Arabs then widely adopted by the local Berber tribes. But there was a greater factor contributing to the political independence of these lands, their great distance from the Caliphate's center of power. Geography is fate, and in this case, Africa was fated to become sovereign. While the Abbasids will hold on to Kairawan and therefore, Tunis for another few decades, they won't be able to exercise much control over the province or its people. Not only will the Karagites form an Ibadi state of sorts down the line, but Aghlab's son, who was only ten years old when his father was killed following his short stint as governor in 765, will go on to found the region's next major dynasty in Tunis, gaining autonomy after a career of faithful service. The only part of the caliphate we have left is one we have not discussed in quite a while. The last time we had anything to say about Andalusia was back during Hisham's reign, and things were pretty chaotic there even before the dark days of the Third Fitna or the upheaval of the Abbasid Revolution. In a nutshell, Andalusia's Arabs were divided. The ones originally from Qayrawan supported Yusuf al-Fihri, and the reinforcements which Hisham had sent to help quell the great Berber revolt backed their Syrian commander al-Sumayl al-Kilabi. On top of that, the Arabs still had to contend with Berber and local rebellions against them, so it was a dangerous mess for all involved. But we can't just delve into Andalusia like this. What we're about to tell demands more context and some good old-fashioned storytelling. I was a little conflicted as to whether or not I should break this part out into its own episode. But ultimately, I decided against it, mainly because our sources are pretty much silent about the whole affair. Literally, the only thing on Andalusia during this time in all three of our histories is one sentence from Al-Tabari, who... Writing some concluding remarks about the year 757, says that it was the year in which Abdul Rahman ibn Muawiyah ibn Hisham ibn Abdul Malik ibn Marwan became its emir, or commander. Did you recognize the name? al Rahman would not have been familiar, but every one of his ancestors should have, and if they were, then you already appreciate how unthinkable this development was. I'm not sure if it was his Umayyad ancestry or the fact that Andalusia was so far away from the Iraq our authors hail from, it was probably a bit of both, but our three very Abbasid sources have nothing to say about how any of that happened. Luckily, we have plenty of later Umayyad histories happy to pick up the baton and construct a moving narrative for us to follow. It would have been pretty easy to get a half hour out of the dramatic journey they report for al-Rahman but I thought it best to average together Abbasid silence and Umayyad bombast to end up with a ten-minute or so synopsis of the matter. Our summary starts at the end of the Umayyad era, when al-Rahman's clan was being hunted mercilessly by agents of the new Abbasid dynasty. He was twenty years old when he took off from Damascus with some family members and servants. We're told their destination was the distant land of Morocco, because that is where Abdurrahman's mother was from, and they believed her tribe would take them in and offer protection. Despite their best efforts, the party was ambushed by Abbasid troops at least twice, leaving Abdurrahman nobody but his loyal Greek freedman Badr to accompany him on his dangerous journey. After what must have been a harrowing and stealthy expedition across Palestine and Egypt, they made their first stop in Afrika. Which had not yet been lost to the Karajites by that point. The province's governor was a member of the prominent Fihri family that had held local power. The province's governor was a member of the prominent Fihri family, which had held power locally since the Arabs first moved in. See, the province was too distant to prevent the rise of such a family even back in the Umayyad Caliphate, when the seat of power was in Syria was only going to get more difficult now that Iraq was the center of operations. This Fihri seems to have wanted to hold on to his position in perpetuity, and at first he tried negotiating such an agreement with al Safah. When he didn't get the terms he was after, he invited any and all surviving Umayyads to his realm in Tunis, promising them sanctuary. Some accounts say his brother usurped him and handed them all over, while others report that he grew worried as the number of Umayyads kept rising, afraid they would either make him too large a target for the Abbasids to ignore, or that the influential clan would eventually outshine and unseat his. Whatever the case may be, in 755, all the Umayyads within Fihri's reach met their end. Abdurrahman and Badr were lucky to not have been in qairawan when the Fihris turned on the Umayyads. This was at the outset of Al-Mansur's reign, and the city and wider province would soon fall to the local Karagites. The now twice-lucky pair continued their journey west, in search of safety, but they quickly realized that Africa was unlikely to ever be safe for them. And that is where Andalusia comes in. Badr sailed there alone first, to make sure it was a safe destination for Rahman. There he found two sets of Arabs, we'll call them the Fehris and the Syrians. Naturally, he approached the Syrian camp first, reasoning that they would more readily support a surviving Umayyad. The Syrian leader, al-Sumayl al-Kilabi, didn't want to be eclipsed by the young prince, so he refused Badr any assistance. Instead of giving up, Badr then went to the supporters of the Fahri governor, who were intrigued enough to be receptive. When he was sure they would at least not kill them, Badr went back to Africa and returned with al-Rahman. Our Umayyad sources tell us that Abd al-Rahman's arrival in Andalusia went beyond the providential. Many of the governor's supporters quickly switched their allegiance to him, as did many Syrians despite al-Kilabi's attempts at stopping them. Al-Fihri and al-Kilabi now became allies of necessity, as they were worried about this noble youth of 25 displacing the both of them. What ensued was a fight for power, which I will skip over almost entirely. Basically, Abd al-Rahman goes from having nothing but his freedmen to facing down both al-Fihri and al-Kilabi on the battlefield. He defeats them soundly and simultaneously, though both of them get away with their lives and would go on resisting him. All this happened in 755, and late in the year he marched into the provincial capital of Qartaba or Cordoba, and prepared to defend it against the repeated assaults of his many enemies. When Abd rahman took power in Andalusia, he received everyone's pledges of support, not as caliph, but as emir or commander. For the first two years, his mosques even followed the others in the ummah by calling for the caliph's health and good fortune after prayers. If any of this was meant to appease al-Mansur, it fell way short of the mark, because the caliph disdained this so-called emir of Andalusia. He just had bigger fish to fry. In 763, the year Al-Mansur was done with his Hashemite kin, he sent an army of 7,000 under the command of Al-A'la ibn Mughith to remove the Umayyad. The Abbasids landed on the southern shore of Portugal and made their way to the capital, which Abdurrahman rahman strategically abandoned for a more fortified position in nearby Carmona. While 7,000 may not seem like much, it was a substantial force in Andalusia and our sources make it sound like it was their sheer size which sustained them for a while. I don't know about that. I think there must have been at least some support for the Abbasid claim in Andalusia, but I know better than to look for it in Umayyad sources. Anyway, Ibn Mughith's job was to kill Abd rahman so he laid siege to Carmona for two months. Things got desperate towards the end. And ultimately, Abd rahman decided to lead a death-or-glory charge against his foe with just 700 men. And wouldn't you know it, he somehow pulled it off. They must have caught the Abbasids off guard, and they took no hostages. Ibn Mughith's head was sent back to the caliph, and our Umayyad sources delight in reporting his terrified response at hearing the news, quote, Thank God for putting a sea between the two of us. I am not sure how panicked al-Mansur was at the loss of 7,000 men, but for whatever reason, he never tried to retake Andalusia again. With this, we have now completed our tour of the Caliphate and covered its battles all over the world. It is clear that the Caliph's hold on the east was a lot firmer while the west slipped further out of his control. We won't return to Andalusia for a very long time, as its emir will be too busy fighting for his throne to ever pose a threat to the Caliphate. Africa would only get more rebellious as the spread of Karajite thought led to larger and more durable local coalitions against the Ummah. The shift to Iraq even made the Byzantines and the Khazars larger threats than before, and although Syria and Armenia were still relatively close to the Caliph's domain, both powers were now more troublesome than before. While Al-Mansur had a much stronger grip on Iraq and the east, we shouldn't forget the great effort that went into that. After all, we had an extended episode on the subject not too long ago. The caliph's success was all enabled by the loyalty of the Khurasaniyah, whom he kept happy and well looked after. It is hard to overstate the role they played. Their forces thwarted his uncle when he tried usurping Al-Mansur at the outset of his reign, and they supported his nephew Isa, when he fought his Hassani Hashemite kin in Medina and Kufa, not to mention everything else they did in the east. It's also important to keep in mind that it was because of the Khurasaniya that Al-Mansur had a free hand in dealing with the Arabs. By this I don't mean that the Caliph ordered these troops to attack misbehaving Arabs, but the possibility sufficed to keep everyone in line. Think back to what I just said about Ibn al the first commander Al-Mansur had sent to retake Africa. He used his Arab armies to defeat his Arab mutineers, and even though he won, this Arab infighting spiraled out into an unmanageable conflict like it often did. This was always going to be a threat with a purely Arab army, as its members consistently demonstrated the tendency to coalesce into groups large enough to leverage concessions from their commander against one another. Having an outsider group like the Khurasaniyah disrupted that dynamic entirely. They were an element the Arabs did not readily form coalitions with, and that is what kept tribes in line during Al-Mansur's reign. It is just another way that the Khurasaniyah were put to effective use, and the perceptive caliph had such an appreciation for their role within the caliphate that he made sure to send his son to their homelands in the east to improve his candidacy for succession. So what does this importance of the Khurasaniyyah say about the subtitle of this show, Arab Power? I will need to find a candidate for inflection sooner or later, an event or transformation that I can point to and say look, that's where we go from rise to fall. I'm not sure this is a good one though. There will eventually come a time in the Abbasid Caliphate when the Arabs really held no sway and so maybe someone taking a more cursory glance at the history would be happy to conclude that the fall began sometime early in Abbasid times, but I think we can do better than that. The momentous role the khurasaniyya played in this part of the history is indeed noteworthy, but I would argue against anyone saying that Arab power began to wane during Al-Mansur's time in charge. Before I wrap up, I just want to say that I won't be able to release the next episode on time, so instead of the 8th, look for it on the 22nd of May. I say this with a heavy heart. I really felt good about the consistent run I had there for a while. But work is about to get very busy. My folks are coming over for a visit, Elden Ring recently came out, and Ramadan is coming up, all of which is bound to slow me down. Well, it's already Ramadan for y'all, so Ramadan Kareem, or, you know, happy Ramadan. When we return, we'll have more to say about Al-Mansur, his new capital, how he ruled, lived, and some of the significant changes he made while in power. Wish me luck with work, and you will hear from me next month, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.